Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, friends. This is Chris Marchand, and I'm glad to have you with me today in the tent. My conversation today is with Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. You may know Scott McKnight as a New Testament scholar, author of numerous books such as Reading Romans Backward and Pastor Paul. His daughter, Laura, is a school teacher. Together, they've authored a book, A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. It's about the church scandals that have been going on. It's about people struggling with toxic ministry, toxic pastors, toxic leadership within the church. What do we do about it? Well, Dr. McKnight and his daughter offer us a way of reimagining what church life can look like, what community life can look like together. And it's found in the word tov, goodness. This book has been on my heart a lot, and uh, I've immersed myself in it over the past couple of months, and it's, it's one I hope to live out in my own community. So it's one that I continue to think about. I wanted to give a quick shout out to my old friends, Amanda and Jason Vineco, for connecting me to Laura Berenger and being one part of getting this conversation set up, as well as to our old church family at Church of the Redeemer in Highwood, Illinois, especially to Jay Greener and Amanda Holm Rosengren. Many people there are still very dear to us, and if you pay close enough attention, there are some Easter eggs where they and their congregation make an appearance in the book. You can find out more about a church called Tove on their website, churchcalledtove.org, or you can read Scott's Jesus Creed blog, which you can find on Christianity Today's website, or sign up for his newsletter on substack.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with them and find yourself as inspired and challenged as I was in reading the book. One of the questions we, we like to ask our guests is, what's your political heritage? What was, what was handed to you? But, but Scott, I'd actually like to, to start with you first. And I, I want to ask a, a similar question, but, but something that's slightly different. When you were on, you know, starting out as a scholar, maybe just as a student, was there a moment when you realized this whole Jesus thing wasn't just spiritual? that there was some connections to the real world was, did you have a moment, uh, could have been anywhere along your journey where you're like, oh, this affects everything. This affects the world around me. Yeah, I would say even when I was in college, I remember talking to my favorite Bible professor, Joe Crawford. And I said something like, you know, I'm realizing that as you read the Bible, this is a philosophy of all of life. But I absolutely did not chase that down. It was when I was a seminary student that I encountered the Anabaptists. And in particular, I read Richard, um, not Richard, Ronald Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And Chris and I, my wife and I, were involved in an Anoim home house in Waukegan, which is uh, Dorothy Day, Catholic worker. Um, very, very active socially. People there were very strong pacifists, um, etc. That 
I saw the politics of Jesus at the time I was comfortable reading John Howard Yoder. So uh, I, I began to see a more political, but it was an Anabaptist political theory that I still hold to pretty firmly that we are to confess Jesus as Lord over all. The Lion of Judah is the Lamb who was slain, uh, Revelation 4 and 5. And this vision transforms our political engagement away from partisanship toward, um, let's say, justice and peace, uh, as embodied especially and first and foremost in church way of in a church way of life. I'm not committed to any political party. I am an equal opportunity critic of both. So I can sometimes be confused for a Democrat or a Republican. But I'm terribly disappointed in the politicization of the church uh, in the last since Reagan. And I think that it is what I mean by that is it's partisanized. Uh, rather than politicized, but those terms can be flipped around pretty easily. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That, that'll start us out. L- Laura, I kind of have a similar question for you. So you're you're an elementary school teacher, is that correct? Correct. Now, are you still doing your day job? <laughs> yes, I am. So, <laughs> so, so we, we're recording like in, you know, supper time. So you've done your day already, right? Is that correct? correct? Okay, yeah, all correct. right. So my question is maybe two-pronged. You can kind of put it together. You know, you, you grew up with this, this uh, theologian, Bible scholar as a father. What about you? When did you put something together where you're like, oh, well, this is how my faith impacts the real world? Uh, mm-hmm. It could be within the teacher realm or just something else that you saw as you were growing up. When, when, when did something click in the sense of, uh, of politics or how, how the church is meant to serve the world outside themselves? That's a really good question. Um, I would have to say when I was at Wheaton College, being away from my parents, living away for the first time, I realized that I think my faith became my own then. I wasn't under their roof anymore. You also asked, what was the last part of your question? Because it triggered a thought for me. You said... How does it play out in the world? Yeah, like, yeah, instead of like a personalized faith, how does it, how does it affect the world around us? Well, for me, this became personal and it became the book, A Church Called Tove, that we wrote together. But I really felt a calling to use my faith to speak up, to call the church to tell the truth. Um, in the Willow Creek story. And I bring up Willow Creek because that is my former church. And um, it is the story that broke those of us who live here in the Chicago area. Many of us remember where we were when the Chicago Tribune article broke about Bill Hybels and allegations of um, harassment against women. And what was really startling is reading the article is most of the names were familiar. They were people that we had known a long time. So to come back to your question, it was really, it was probably the first time in my adult life that I had felt called to speak about it. It felt like, like the Holy Spirit was using my dad and me to call Willow Creek to tell the truth. And it was a time when we used our faith 
felt called to use it in the world. You know, Chris, um, Laura could probably say the same thing. I did not know my parents were Democrats till I was 60 years old. I remember when we called grandma, mom said, your mom and dad are Democrats. And you said, no, they're not. They're Republicans. And mom called them and said, you're Democrats, right? When they were like 85 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I would put it this way. It was, I grew up in a non-political home in the sense that, yes, my mom and dad were very strong for a man in our church who was running for mayor. So they got involved that way. My father was a part of the, he was on some committee in our local town to um, interview and appoint policemen and firemen. They had to go through a long process. So he was involved in the community, but I don't remember them ever making any deal of who was running for president other than perhaps when Kennedy ran and he was a Roman Catholic. But my mom and my dad was a public school teacher and he was from Southern Illinois. His father was a coal miner. They're all Democrats, Southern Democrats. Then my father as a public school teacher always voted for Democrats because of that. So they were Democrats, but they never, I don't ever remember my mom and dad saying who they voted for in an election. And I don't think Laura grew up in a home that talked much about who we voted for. You didn't accept, I hope it's okay to say this, I won't say who did what, but they would cancel each other out. One would vote for one party and the other would vote for the other party. So I remember thinking, why even go vote? Because you just canceled each other out. That's what I remember from growing up. Yeah. You might tell us who you voted for, but it wasn't it wasn't a major topic of conversation in our house. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got I got I got to tell the truth about one of them. In a primary, I voted one time. This is a total. This is a. This was on a lark. I voted for Jesse Jackson, so that I could be the only person in the whole town that voted for Jesse Jackson when they tallied the votes. And when they tallied the votes, there were two. Well, that's, that's telling. That's telling of the cultures that maybe some, some of us come from. Yeah. Well, okay. So, Laura, you, you kind of already delved into one of my initial questions. Oh, by the way, I want to say this. I think I saw you do this once. Um, you, you say, like, what's, what's, what's your first introduction of the word tove, right? I think you've said that before. Like, where, do you, where have you been introduced to that word? And so... I've been mispronouncing it the whole time. Uh, and I, and I blame Fiddler on the Roof. I blame Fiddler on the Roof. Um, Cause I, I was in that in high school and I love that, uh, that, that musical. So I have the song, a blessing on your house, mazel tov, mazel tov. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I say tov, um, yeah. but I've been trying to rewire my brain here in the last couple of weeks as I've been getting ready. So you, you do say tov, right? Well, tov is the modern Hebrew pronunciation and the classic Hebrew but it is said Tav, let's say in New York City, and I think in Yiddish, the Yiddish uh, derivations are Tav. I believe that's where it comes from. But I never heard the word Tav. I guess I did never listen to Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> um, I don't remember hearing people say Matzel Tav, but we've had maybe one out of 
five people who uh, talk to us on podcasts. You know, interestingly, I have a number of Jewish friends at work and they love the title of our book because it's a Jewish word. They all say Mazel Tov. In fact, when we, when we pub, when I published the book, you know, they were like, we're so excited for you. Mazel Tov. I was like, this is funny. That's not how we say it, but yeah, my Jewish friends say Tov. (laughs) Thank you for, yeah, you, you've convoluted it even more for me, but (laughs) it's fine. It's fine. I think, I think one of my questions that I want to get into about the book, and I think, I think what I'm so curious about is the personal relation with this. Now it's interesting, Scott, I wasn't really all that aware of the Chicago Tribune. I was reading your articles. I was reading the things that you were putting out um, as these stories were breaking. I guess I just didn't make my way past, you know, the next level of journalism. And, you know, I I would regularly read your blog. Um, I think we have another mutual friend, uh, Michelle Van Loon uh, is another mutual friend. So she's a, she's a friend of mine and we, we still, you know, message each other every now and then. Laura, I'm, I'm just interested I think maybe as I was reading the first part of your book, I was trying to immerse myself in the pain of all of this. The 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 even though Willow Creek, you know, they're huge, right? They're 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 an icon in America. This was your community. This was your people, mm-hmm. and I and I get the impression, Laura, that as much as you wrote this book together, you were the catalyst for it. Is that? kind of maybe the, some of the impression that I was getting because this was your church experience. Can you say a little bit about that? And I don't know, like what, what gave you the guts to say, yep, we're going to do it. We're going to address it. Let's, let's do this, dad. Well, <laughs> my dad called me a pest. And with every interview we've done, he's reminded me of what a pest I was. Scott so was just I, holding up a cue. He had a card. Was that yeah. pre-prepared? You had the same one everywhere. It said, I just wrote it on here. I just wrote it. Okay. <laughs> so this was not a project that I ever imagined I would be involved in. I didn't, I, it, I thought it was out of my league. I didn't want to be involved in it. My dad is the one that had the platform and he was the author. And so I wanted him to write about it. So what would happen is we would have these great theological conversations with my dad about things the Willow Creek elders, for example, were saying, and then, you know, he would explain, well, they're actually not using Matthew 18 correctly. This is the verse they should be using. They should look at Deuteronomy. And this woman was believed from the beginning. And I felt the more time that went on, I was, and my dad would say the same thing. Willow Creek was silent. It was just, it went radio silence and it felt to us like they just wanted the story to go away And that is what I personally felt like I could not live with is this is going to be the end of the story that the church, the church wins, the women's stories are buried and nobody, people don't know the truth. And so I became a pest encouraging my dad to write. Um, That's really for us how the whole project started were his blog posts that went Christian viral. And it was because of uh, Laura's um, and our conversations that we had so many of that um, I wrote that first post. I had written that post probably uh, eight weeks earlier. I'd written it in an airport in Cincinnati. I wanted to I wanted to put my ideas together and down on paper that we'd been talking about. I just, this is the way I I live, you know. I write, so I I wrote them out, not not thinking that anything would come of it. 
And I didn't, uh, we sat on it for two months and it was after we were on a trip. I was with, on, in, on the Mediterranean with some students um, that I came back and that's when I asked Laura and she, I don't remember you using the word radio silent, but at that time, Willow seemed to be stalling in order to wear out the women and let the story die out. So I thought I have to do something. I have to do what I can do to keep this story alive because I believe the women. So I wrote that first blog post and the rest is history, I guess, because we got involved in this story publicly. And um, so that's, that's how it happened. But I, I would never have done that or written this book had Laura not, not been a pest about it. How do you write about this stuff? With, so you're writing, you're, I mean, whether it's the older blog post and you were trying, as it was ongoing, or you're, you, you write this book, especially the first part of it, and everything that's going on in our society right now. I mean, it, it just seems like, pick your week, there's going to be another scandal, another uh, news story that breaks about abusive leadership. How do you engage with this, write about it, without the toxicity overtaking you, like the gotcha-ness of it, like uh, almost uh, the sense of the joy of bringing somebody down. I don't sense that in you two. I don't know how, it, it, to me, it seems like it, it wavers on an edge. Like it's, it's like a balancing act. How, how have you navigated that within yourself as, you've, have you, as you have continually tried to confront the powers that be? How, how have you navigated that spiritually, I guess? Well, for me, it was never about taking Willow Creek down. And it was painful to talk about Willow Creek. It was painful to realize that they weren't telling the truth. For me, it was always about the people that had been wounded and they were being painted out as liars. And all we really wanted was for the church to tell the truth. You know, that idea schadenfreude is the german word for this desire for somebody else to suffer i don't think we felt that uh i felt uh, a righteous and i know laura did too a righteous indignation about some of this stuff and that it wasn't right and somebody needed to do something to rectify the situation there was some of that but also chris i'm i'm a professor at a seminary and I have a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility to my students to help them think through situations like this. So, and because they're concerned that this doesn't happen to them, they want to know what's going on in these people's lives. So we were doing that, but I, I got to tell you, I never wanted Willow Creek to fail. I don't want any of these churches to fail. These churches are predominantly filled with good people, Tove people. Uh, they could be mistaken theologically or something like that. They can have some goofy things. But I wanted some of these leaders out of ministry and learning the grace of God again as to how they're supposed to operate as Christian pastors. So there have been a number of them that I, I would say they should be removed from pastoral offices and go through therapy and go through a process of rehabilitation and restoration based on growth in character rather than in their platform persona and performances. Uh, and I would not call them charlatans. I, I got a couple that I would, but we'll leave them out of the picture. 
I, I don't think they're charlatans. I think that they are deeply flawed characters and deeply mistaken in their pastoral decisions. Uh, in most of those cases, they can be rectified and at least put back on the path. So there have been some well-known pastors who have fallen, who have been restored and have gone on to have flourishing ministries. But uh, some of them, some of these people have had such so much corruption that they could never be trusted again. Something else that really bothered me, and I know it bothered my dad too, but part of my, um, the stirring within me that kept pestering my dad to write, the number of people that were following what the leaders and pastors were saying, as you should, right? You should be able to trust what your pastors and leaders tell you. So we would hear, I would hear the elders make a statement, for example, about Matthew 18. And then I would hear the same words come out of my friend's mouths at dinner about how the women didn't follow the proper channels. They shouldn't have gone to the media that you should have, they should have um, sat down with Bill Hybels on, on one and resolved the situation privately. So I'm hearing this repeated through people that are following and listening to what the elders and leaders are saying. And the numbers, I, I just thought, I felt that was so wrong that you're, it's spiritually abusive to be misleading your congregation, to be using the Bible as a weapon almost to silence people who are, who have been hurt and are trying to tell the truth. So that was another burning in my, in our soul, like, there's too many people listening and following to what they're saying. So that, that's that's actually interesting. Scott, uh, would you be able to speak on that passage in Deuteronomy and how that relates to, to Matthew 18? That's a, I, I really, uh, that was an eye-opening part of the book where, where you went over that passage. Could you just give us a synopsis of how is that misapplied and, and what should, how should we be applying uh, confronting authority figures or even just equals, peers, whatever it is, when wrong has been done? Uh, in, the, in the Christian circles, um, people are using Matthew 18 as a prescription for dealing with all conflict. Every broken relationship has to follow Matthew 18. Okay, some of them have used uh, pastoral epistles statement that you should never bring a charge against an elder apart from two or three witnesses. Um, some are also using 1 Corinthians 6 about lawsuits. When, the, when they started using this, I thought to myself, this is morally and psychologically reckless. I mean, this was an immediate reaction on my part. I thought, no way. This is not the text to be using there. So I thought to myself, is there any text in the Bible that actually deals with a charge by a woman against a man for physical sexual harassment or rape? Yes, there is in Deuteronomy. And in that text, there's this is typical casuistic law in the Hebrew Bible. All right. If a man and a woman are in the countryside, are in the city, and a man uh, harasses or rapes a woman, seizes the woman, uh, the question is, did she scream or, or yell? Was her voice heard? Uh, because in a city, it could be heard. Um, if they are in a country, the presumption is that the woman screamed 
and was not hurt, and the man is guilty. Okay, those are the texts that have to be used. And the text is using the accusation of a woman against a man in the balance of probabilities is going to be true. Now, immediately, the people, I always ask the question this, Chris, I say, who has the advantage if we appeal to Deuteronomy and who has the advantage if we appeal to Matthew 18? If we appeal to Matthew 18, the perpetrator has the advantage. Uh, a woman who has been harassed by a pastor is afraid to go confront him. All right. In the Willow stories, one of the women, Vonda Dyer, confronted Bill Hybels and said, knock it off. And he said, understood. Uh, I don't think he knocked it off, but he got, he got, he probably got the fear of God shook into him a little bit. All right. So in Matthew 18, the person in power has such asymmetrical relationship that the person in power is going to be favored. In, in Deuteronomy, the text is going to favor the woman. And I consulted uh, two, or two, two Old Testament scholars, uh, one who was a woman who said, uh, your interpretation of that text is justified, is that that's what it's saying, is that the woman's voice is going to be trusted. All right, so one thing is you ask, you got to get to the right text. The text are actually dealing with this. The second thing you ask, who has the advantage of which text? This is the what we were hearing behind the scenes is these explanations of which texts the church should actually be using and how how the misapplication of Matthew 18, frankly, like my dad said, it was reckless. It was morally reckless and I don't know, I'm not a psychologist or theologian, but I would label it as spiritually abusive when you take a text and misuse it to silence people who have been hurt. And I shouldn't say hurt, who have been deeply wounded by not only the pastor who abused them, but by the church who's tried to silence them. So we are hearing these explanations of Deuteronomy and, and what they should be using instead. And that's why I felt like my dad was the person to speak up. But Matthew 18 uh, is not a prescriptive text for every situation of conflict. It's just not, it doesn't work like that. I mean, psychologically, you don't demand that a raped woman have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with her rapist as if you're going to make peace in that situation. This is incredible. And the minute, the minute you bring in a mediator, or another person, you are no longer following Matthew 18. You're now using wisdom and good sense. So I found, I found the way uh, the text was being used to be a very good illustration of spiritual abuse by the use of, of pastors and people in power with scripture in order to basically silence or scare a woman into not speaking up. And what we've unfortunately learned is this is a pattern. We've seen this since writing the book. We've received letters and stories and just Ooh. been tuned more in to stories that have broken in the news that this is a common pattern that churches are using is they are, they're appealing to Matthew 18 and who can argue with the pastor and the Bible. 
Um, it takes a discerning person and somebody confident enough to say, no, they're not using that correctly when you're the one in the situation. Here's something I hear you saying. When the woman comes to oppress, uh, to uh, confront her abuser, her rapist, she is powerless. And she might be powerless for two reasons. She's already been raped or abused or harassed. So she's, she's downtrodden in her soul. But then she's confronting somebody who is beloved and in power. And I think one of the slivers of your book, there's a lot to it, is you're calling the church to raise her up, to raise her up to a place of, of being dignified, of being heard, as opposed to she ends up being the one that's demonized. Um, and I, I'm, I, I'm going to get into this a little later. Uh, uh, I'm Anglican. I'm an Anglican priest. And those are the stories that I heard. Uh, I, I saw women bringing forth what happened to them or to their children. And then they're just demonized again, because how dare you? How dare you yeah. uh, say this about our, our, our beloved pastor? I hear you calling us as the church, as the body of Christ to say, those women need to be empowered to have a voice, to be heard, to be listened to. Chris, the, uh, th this is the point I was going to make. The research is a minimal of 90% of the women who make allegations against men are telling the truth. It can be as high as 95 to 98%. Um, and most women do not come forward. So there's th that whole silence, the uh, unknown. And, th and then they get blamed for that as well. They get blamed oh, for that right. as well. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, because, and this is where you, you were touching on this, I think, is a pastor is a mediator of God to people. A pastor has the authority of scripture. The pastor for many people speaks the words of God. So he is invested or she is invested with divine status in many people's minds. And therefore, when he says these things, he's right. She's right uh, in preaching this text and telling you what the Bible means. And how many people can actually counter a pastor's interpretation of scripture. So they have this all this power and authority, and it can be easily abused to their own advantage. And that's why uh, there needs to be people who will who will sit around and offer critical remarks of the way pastors are using Matthew 18 today. And I I just I just heard a story today about the same thing. Matthew 18. It's wrong. They're using it wrong in order to foist their power upon other people. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Laura, you've already mentioned this. You, you kind of said it in passing, but I was wondering, It's it's been a year or so. I, I don't know when the exact publication date is. Get, bring us up to speed. What, uh, what have you brought out into the world? What are some of the stories that you can speak about? And like, I actually heard a rumble that you're actually writing another book that's related to this. So maybe... That's three questions at once. I guess that's, you know, I'm giving you the floor. What, what do you yeah. want to say about all that? <laughs> it's been, you know, it's been a year since we published a church called Tove, and we are still getting requests for interviews and conversations and events. Um, last week alone, I had three interviews and my dad, you have more than I even am aware of. Um <laughs> So it's been, it's been really exciting, but also difficult because there's, 
too many people that have stories that want to have this conversation. I also feel really, what's the word? I hold the stories that have been told to us very, I hold them sacredly because I, first we've become people that um, abused trust to tell their stories to. And there was a period of time when we first published where we were getting, we were getting stories weekly. I mean, every week I was getting letters and my dad was getting letters from men and women. Mostly we were getting them from people who had been wounded by the church, who had been abused by a pastor and authority, most often a woman. The pastor had misused his power and mistreated those underneath him. And story after story after story. What I'm really thankful for is another theme that that they tell us is that our book has given them a language to speak, that they don't feel crazy and they know that they're not alone. So I feel I feel most grateful for that is that people know that not alone and that what they see is true, that it's really happening to them. And yes, we are writing another book. Uh, because the most common question we are asked is, okay, I'm in a toxic church. What can we do to make it tove? So we are writing a book. It's got probably a subtitle. I don't know. I don't think we have a title yet. Uh, From Toxic to Tove. But uh, we have, we've, we've danced with quite a few titles. Yeah, that's the, been the most common question is how do we take our church and, and make it tove? Or how do we we're young church, we're just starting out. How do we make sure that we are, we build it to be Tove? It's been probably by and large, the most common question we've had over the last year. Yeah. It's funny because I had the same question. I was like, I was trying to figure out a way to ask it that question, but in a different way, <laughs> Scott, what did you want to say? Well, the, uh, the number of stories that have come to us, Chris, are alarming and we have become a safe place for many people to tell their stories. Um, and almost all of them have been power abuse and some of them by very well-known pastors. So we're, we are valuing that, but yes, we are, we are working on a book. It's a, it's a messy manuscript now. It's, I think all the parts are there, but uh, it's too long and we have to cut it back and we have to simplify it and shape it and get it in the proper order. I would say, you know, you say, how do we do this? There's no one thing, but there are a series of practices and habits that churches and leaders and people are going to have to adapt and adopt and start working at over the long haul because it takes a long time to transform a culture. But it it involves things like this, the proper use of power, includes the proper understanding of power. It includes focusing on character rather than gifts, skills, and performance abilities on the platform on Sunday morning. Uh, It involves uh, becoming an example as leaders worthy of being followed. Uh, It involves a whole lot of patience and building coalitions and, uh, and that always goes back into how we use power. You know, there's a standard joke, and I teach pastors, and they all have heard this story. I'd never heard it until one of them used it this last June. 
They, one of the students says, okay, I'll tell him then. They said, how do you move a piano on the church platform? And I said, uh, I have no idea. They said, one inch a week. And that's, that's the, they said, if you move it all in one week, you'll have a church split. If you move it too fast, you'll have a lot of fights. If you move it one inch a week, five years later, you wake up and it's at the other side and nobody ever noticed. And that's, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big idea about transforming a church culture is if you think you can go away for a weekend and come back, everybody all buzzed up about, you know, we're going to become a Tove church. It's not going to happen. It takes a long time to form a culture and the standard expression a standard estimation is it's a seven-year process mm. to change a culture mm. uh it's funny you're bringing up some some of the the things that i was wondering about as i was reading it Here, here's number one it has to do with you too because you've written this book and as i got to the end i'm like going not only how do we do this but i'm thinking well you you have to have a full-time job now consulting with churches um, like this is your life now. You've you've invented the fu- your 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 the, your future selves, and I'm thinking, well, no. It says right here, she's a school teacher, and I know what Scott McKnight does. Um, and so I'm wondering about that. Like, you have another book coming, but organizationally, relationally between churches, what what do you do? Like, what have you had discussions of like developing a team to help you? Or I'm just curious about that. Well, that's funny. My dad, when we talked about writing the second book, my dad said, no, I'm not writing a second book. I am not going to consult churches. I don't want to have any more interviews. <laughs> so um, I've done 125 podcasts on <laughs> in one year. And you, yeah. you, you agreed to doing mine. I'm so honored. I'm so honored. <laughs> but um you know, I, I'm I'm aware. I mean, first of all, I'm a professor, and I teach. I like teaching. I like writing what I do, and I've got contracts, you know, of things to do. So I I'm busy doing that. But we could, I think, we could easily make this a full time business, of both, um, let's say, an educational format of teaching churches about Tove, and character formation in churches and of investigating toxic situations in churches and giving churches evaluations of their lack of tove. I think it could easily become a business. Um, I feel called to do that. I wish somebody would and uh, would give us $350,000 so we could get, so we could get off the ground and hire some people and get it going. Um, I think that we could supervise some of this and we could hire the right people. Uh, I think it needs to be done. I think we need uh, a multi-pronged attack at what's going on in churches. We have people like Grace, where Boz Javidian was at one point. We have a couple other businesses that are actually involved in investigating. But the tendency of almost all of them is to support the church staff against the accusers rather than what is often now called a survivor sensitive or a survivor centric 
or a trauma-informed approach to these issues. I think we want to find the truth. And for the truth to be found, the pastors have to get out of the way. The church has to get out of the way so a genuinely independent investigation can occur. Oh, we've got people in ACNA right now, Chris, a pastor in Texas right now, calling people who are advocates for survivors vigilantes who, uh, and just using scurrilous and defamatory and scandalous words about some people that I know who are actually involved in supporting uh, survivors. It is unacceptable to treat uh, the wounded victims this way. It's unacceptable, but it's happening. Laura, did you have anything on that? I have, I do have a question, but I was curious if you had any further thoughts. About the business we could run. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> oh. No, I mean, it's, it can be like, it can be kind of jarring sometimes because I teach, I'm teaching kindergarten this year and I have 21 five-year-olds and they have no patience for me like being distracted. So um, it can be kind of jarring sometimes to do that all day, but I try to be organized and we do interviews in the evening. Um, we did a lot of work over the summer, yeah. so yeah. it works out that way for us. But like we my wrote, dad, yeah. yeah, we wrote the second, the first draft, we got the junk, we got it all put together in a sense, got some initial thoughts worked out in the summer. By the time Laura went back to school, it was mostly in, it was pretty close to being done. Uh, a rough draft that needed then to be worked out very, and we, we're doing a lot of work on it still. So it's not due till January, and I think we'll be fine. Here's where I want to go next. Scott, you you uh, you brought that about by you mentioning other other church leaders, pastors coming against those standing with victims. And I, I have this burning question. Uh, you know, I, I come from a hierarchical tradition. I, I actually grew up uh, Pentecostal, so I have I have that a lot in my bones and my blood. But I joined a hierarchical tradition as being an Anglican. We have bishops. Uh, uh, ordained ministry is perceived a certain way, right? Uh, some people even think, you know, priest, priests for the order of Melchizedek, we've been forever set apart, you know, we're, we're almost, I don't, I don't know, maybe our DNA changes a bit or something. So I, don't, I don't know exactly what people think. Um, I'm, I'm half joking. What I want to bring up is your book, your book together, it has the potential to fundamentally change how we perceive ministers and leaders in the church. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, uh, Maybe the word kenosis comes to mind, this understanding of self-emptying love, um, you know, following after Christ. And I see the opposite uh, in, in the public sphere. I see the grasping of power saying, no, this is my authority. I am here. I have a, you know, I'm the pastor. I'm the ordained one. And I think I love what you've done. And I look on some of the people that I know and some of the famous ones and I go, yeah, they're not going to be on board with this, are they? Uh, and, and you you might even change a tradition like ours, Anglicans with bishops, where instead of the bishop being the one, if the bishop says, I need you to do this, and you just go, yes, bishop, I'll do that. Instead, the bishop is living out of self-emptying love. <laughs> and and the, he's, he just becomes the greatest servant of all. I guess I'm just curious of your thoughts on this, because I I see, I see this changing the landscape if we let it. 
it's it's 2000 years old it's what jesus gave us but i think the churches are so hung up on their own authority that this is gonna this is gonna ruffle some people any thoughts on that well i i do but it's uh this is an endless conversation and that is we have a culture in churches that is the result of pastors and congregations over time nurturing an environment of let's just say over responsibility by pastors under responsibility by congregants that has led to authoritarian leadership and to authoritarian narcissistic types being attracted to leadership in churches because they get to fulfill their disorders uh, in 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 the pulpit. Okay, so we have we have a lot of this. I totally agree with you that, and it's even more in the next book, is that power has to be constantly checked by leaders. They need to know how they're using power and abusing power. And, and it is too difficult for many to perceive because they have too much narcissism in their DNA and they have a lack of insight. So I believe, I believe that the ideal of bishops or priests or pastors is a form of ministry in serving other people. So that's been the history of the church, but it has also been bugged and polluted and filled with the cancer of the authoritarian use of power in abusive ways so that, let's say, servant leadership is no longer the actual practice. I don't care how much they talk about it. There is in the world a love of power, and Jesus taught a power, the power of love. That right there is the revolutionary transformation that we see in Jesus that would transform churches from pastors who are authorities and power over people and dominate and coerce to pastors who share power and who use their power for the good of others and who empower other people. That's a, that's a revolution. Yeah. I had this moment, I'll admit, while I'm reading the book, uh, and I, I do have a question about this maybe in a little bit here, is I thought, okay, here we go. It's another leadership manual. I've done this. <laughs> I've done the thing. I've read the leadership manuals, right? I'm a trained minister. Uh, and I do have some comments on that in a minute. As I was reading the book, it, it hit me. I thought, oh, they're just asking us to follow Jesus. They're just <laughs> that's the model like look to jesus what did he do what did he say what did he preach and uh and and, I, and it, and it, it kind of hit me and there and then in the moment i thought oh i don't know if we can do this yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't yeah, know if we can a, follow it's, jesus it's a it's it's beyond <laughs> i'm i'm disheartened by the capacity of this idea to actually take root but we'll see what do you think laura can it take root yeah, uh, well, I don't know the answer to that, but I've learned a lot from my dad in the last couple of years about the purpose of a pastor. And it's really made me rethink the celebrity pastor and why we're going to church or, you know, I, I'll admit that I was part of the problem at Willow Creek. I went based on who was going to be on stage and if I liked the speaker and 
if I thought it was going to be boring, then I was like, ah, let's go out with the neighbors. And it just became, I felt like I had become a consumer. Um, so it's partly me, but it's also partly what the church has set up for us is that we come and it all builds up to who's talking, you know, it's a cycle. Like it, the, the leaders feed the congregation and the congregation feeds the leaders. And before you know it, you're in this cycle of celebrity culture. And I think that humans are meant to worship other humans. Like, I I just don't think that humans are made to be worshiped when I see and think of some of the celebrity culture at Willow Creek that I participated in. It makes me cringe now to think of what does that do to the human soul when you've got thousands of people clapping for you? And how does it, it takes a person of extraordinary character not to fall temptation to the prey of feeling important and feeling like a celebrity. And it's really made me think the entire purpose of a pastor and what a church is. I've learned this from my dad. I'm not making this up on my own. (laughs) I I love the ending section about uh, really addressing the leadership culture within the church and how it's modeled after businesses. And then you you mentioned some of the greatest, you know, pastoral books uh, written in the the recent decades by Eugene Peterson. I really appreciated that. I, I feel like as a pastor, for years, I didn't feel like worthy of the calling because I just wasn't enough of a big, strong leader guy. And it's because of the culture I came out of where I'm like, well, I'm not that. I, I, I can't be, I can't, I don't even remember the first, uh, the, the, all the 21 fundamental leadership principles by whatever that Maxwell guy was. Like, it was just, it was too much. It was too much. And uh, I, I think your book is helping me to unravel that need to be that type of pastor. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank Thank you you for having us. It was an honor to meet you. Yeah. And uh, I would encourage people to look out for events. I think you have an event coming up tomorrow. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Is that online? It's online and it's live at Northern Seminary. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Starts at nine, doesn't it, Laura? 8.30? Yes. And online, you can register through midnight and it's free of charge. Only $25 in person. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate thank it so you. much. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> to further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10 Theology at www.10theology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.